Hello, my name is Michael McLennan, and welcome to COVID Matters, the podcast produced by COVIDAID. In each episode, we speak to experts, including those with lived experience, about the key issues facing those affected by the pandemic. For this episode, we spoke to Dr. Emily Harrop about how people around the UK have been experiencing bereavement and end-of-life care during the COVID-19 pandemic. Emily is a Marie Curie Research Fellow at Cardiff University. She is a qualitative palliative care researcher with a background in the social sciences. Her research interests are bereavement care and experiences, the support needs of family carers, patient and family experiences of living with advanced illnesses, patient experiences of clinical trials and service innovation, and evaluation of palliative and end-of-life care. She is currently co-principal investigator on the bereavement during COVID-19 study. I hope you appreciate our conversation. I'll be back after the interview. Thank you so much for joining us. It'd be great to start by finding out a bit more about yourself and what you've been up to. I'm a research fellow at uh, the Marie Curie Research Centre at Cardiff University, um, which is a, a, a palliative care research centre looking into um, all aspects of um, palliative and end-of-life care research. Um, I have a background in social sciences. I, was, um, I did a PhD in sociology, medical sociology, um, but following that, have um, been working in palliative care at the centre for the last 10, 10 or so years. Um, and I'd say over the last four or five years, a lot of my work has been um, focused around bereavement and support for the relatives of people who um, died from terminal illnesses. And then with COVID particularly, um, obviously I've been doing a lot more work around bereavement and bereavement more generally. So not just in the context of palliative care and terminal illness, but all, all types of um, death and bereavement. Can you tell us a bit about how your work changed after lockdown and how that's been? So, yeah, we, we still haven't been back to the office. We were sent home in um, March, 20, March 2020, about a week before the national lockdown began, and, and have been working remotely ever since with the interest that I had around bereavement when um, you know, it became apparent that COVID was you know, so sadly causing so many um deaths and bereavements there became a lot of more interest in this work um, and so yeah I have been really busy since um, going into lockdown one of the first things that we did was a literature review um, to see what we could learn from not just from previous pandemics but also from other mass bereavement events looking at you know how governments um, had responded to previous mass bereavement events and maybe if there are any lessons learned from that in terms of um, supporting people so there wasn't a huge amount of literature there when we um, did our searches, but the um, events that did come up, there was some stuff around September the 11th and, you know, how the New York authorities responded and the interventions they put into place following Hurricane Katrina and also for following the Norway terror attacks. So that was one of the first pieces of work, really, that we did was just to look to see what, because obviously there wasn't, there's nothing on pan- previous pandemics, actually, obviously you know, there hasn't been anything like this. But we were interested to see if we could learn anything from other sort of mass mass bereavement events and how um, governments responded to it. So that was the first um, piece of work that I did when we went into lockdown. Um, and then following that, um, with my colleague Lucy Salmon at the University of Bristol, who I did this review with, 
um, we decided to put in a grant application to do some primary research um, or people's experiences of being bereaved during COVID um, and also how the bereavement sector had responded and how they were managing as well, because obviously this was a complete shock to them in terms of not just the you know greater numbers of people potentially needing support, but also the fact that they were also then having to operate remotely and no longer be giving face-to-face support. So, um, yeah, we put in a funding application for that study and um, we're lucky enough to get it funded by the UKI, UKRI and the ESRC as part of their kind of rapid COVID response. Um, and, yeah, began that study last August, so August 2020. That was, yeah, the start of it. And it'll be great to find out more about that, but I was interested in terms of the initial... Uh, look at other things such as September the 11th. What what were the findings and what were the recommendations at that time? Obviously, I mean, the challenge was that all of these events are very different in their own way. But what we were able to, and the way in which they've been evaluated and looked at, um, was different and of you know varying quality in terms of the research. But what we were able to do was identify some sort of key features that cut across some of these different um, disasters and the responses to them. Um, so, for example, we found that, um, you know, one thing that was done well and was clearly quite important was having a very proactive outreach approach to identifying people who had um, been bereaved and sort of advertising the support that was available for them. You know, it wasn't enough um, just to you know, expect people to go looking for the support. There were actually some targeted efforts, you know, through sort of mass media campaigns, following 911, through sort of social network approaches. Um, yeah, and through other you know, local local networks as well to actually kind of making it, you know, getting the message out to people that there was support being offered. So following September 11th, there was the Project Liberty counselling services that were set up in New York. Um, and that wasn't just for people who lost relatives during the disaster. It was also other people who suffered other kinds of traumas, you know, like um, all of the emergency workers and you know, all the various, you know, there's a lot of trauma in New York at that time. So it was this really rapid response that was, I think it was set up within a few weeks of the disaster, this kind of, sort of free, you know, counselling service that could be accessed by anyone affected within the affected area. And, you know, they put, they put on, um, you know, like radio adverts for it and television adverts for it. So it was really well, well promoted and they, you know, they had quite good uptake across all of the different areas of New York. So that's one thing, having this kind of proactive approach. Um, another feature that we identified was the importance of having a sort of central kind of organisation, but then using local networks and local, you know, providing the support locally as well. So it was having that kind of coordinated response, but also using the support that was already available in local areas and making the most of that. And another thing that came out was, you know, the importance of the people providing the support, sort of really understanding the context and being, being able to acknowledge and respond to the context. So you know, recognising, you know, how the specific aspects of the crisis or the disaster and how that was likely to affect the people in their grief. So kind of went above and beyond a bit, you know, what would be sort of normal bereavement counselling. Although the, the disasters were quite different, the ones we looked at, we, you know, we looked at Hurricane Katrina, 911 in Sweden. There was a support for people who lost family members following the tsunami in 2004. So again, it's really different, different um different events but yeah we there were these co- common strands running through the responses to them yeah and in terms of the primary research that you went on to do one thing i'm interested in is how you managed to research into such a variety of experiences and the kind of methods that you use for that the main way in which we did it was through a certain online survey 
for um, bereaved, for bereaved people. So we um, set up this survey um, and using our kind of university software um, and then promoted it largely through social media to start with, really, through um, through Twitter, through Facebook groups. And which, you know, was that was probably the most effective way that we um, were able to disseminate the survey. It, you know, got shared very widely and in between sort of groups, you know, like the COVID families group, it got shared on their sort of Facebook groups and also through uh, bereavement organisations. We, you know, we had really good support from people like Cruz, from Marie Curie, from Sue Ryder. So a lot of the bereavement charities and organisations also then promoted the survey on their their social media and their web pages and some cases passed it on to you know service users or clients if they're supporting them so that they were the sort of two main ways that we um, were able to reach people who have been affected but yeah and then also like through you know it got some media interest and attention so through um, you know radio interviews and things like that so that was how that was our main way of approaching people was through through this kind of online survey and, and in terms of the findings, there's some really kind of shocking or eye-opening stats there, including the fact that I think it was 51% were not provided with information about bereavement support. So I was wondering if you could tell me a bit more about some of those findings and, and how people felt supported or otherwise. Yeah, so the the survey that we carried out had kind of two main parts to it, really. The first part was looking at people's experience at the end of life, um, you know, sort of in the run-up to death or immediately following the death. And then the second part was looking at their experiences of, um, you know, bereavement support, accessing bereavement support. So kind of a bit sort of further down the line. Yeah. And we found some really interesting results you know, in relation to both of those things. The statistic you mentioned about people not being provided with bereavement support. Yeah, was quite striking, really. Um, that seems you know, a really missed opportunity there in terms of, um, you know, get it, getting the information out to people so that they are then able to get the support that they need. We also found that, you know, people yeah, didn't, I think it was there's, 35% of people um, didn't feel kind of well supported by healthcare professionals following the death, you know, which obviously ties into the support they get after the death as well. Other sort of issues really around the end of life, you know, lots of obviously lots of people weren't able to be with their loved ones when they died and um, be able to say goodbye to their loved ones, which is, you know, really unusual event in, in ordinary times and something which sadly is, you know, all too common during the pandemic, especially during the, the first months of the pandemic. When there was kind of there were sort of blanket bans on you know, being being in hospitals, especially on the COVID wards. So yeah, those were some really striking and quite upsetting findings that came out of our um, first round of survey day, survey data. I think we had 64% of people said they hadn't been able to say goodbye as they would have liked, and then also all the issues around not having the sort of contact support from people following the death as well. That was another thing that really came out quite strongly from ourselves. People felt very isolated and lonely and weren't able to get the emotional support that they needed during that time. What do you think were the things that could have been put in place that would have helped people at that sort of time? And and I can ask that both for the end of life and then also for the bereavement process as well. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really difficult to answer that because it's such exceptional times, isn't it? And it was such an instant, quick thing that seemed to happen with you know, not really much preparation. So. You know, obviously, when we went into lockdown, there was, you know, this almost blanket ban on um, you know, family visiting, families being in hospitals for, you know, for good, for good reason. I mean, they had to control the, the spread of the infection. Um, but I think what's really also come out of this um, study is actually just how important, you know, the really long lasting effects it has on family members and really the trauma caused to them by not being able just to be there to comfort, you know, to comfort their loved one, to have that contact with them or, 
even some kind of communication, you know, some of the, you know, even some of the feedback we're getting back was actually even just, you know, actually FaceTime calls were, you know, they're better than nothing. So I think it was something that got better as the um, pandemic went on, you know, as they were able to find ways of um, family members being able to visit if it was, if it was felt to be very close to the end. And, you know, if there was enough PPE available for family members to wear and people got better at using iPads and iPads iPhones and you know establishing more remote forms of contact between patients. I mean, it's you, you know, it's although it's you know, an awful situation, isn't it, that people aren't able to visit, you know, as they would normally have been. It's it's tricky, really, to know how how best to remedy that, other than just to make sure that there are alternative methods available if face to face visiting isn't possible. And in terms of uh, with people who passed away during this time, did, was there a difference in terms of when people were passing away as a result of COVID-19 or through other uh, kind of means? Yeah, we did find that there were differences. Um, people whose loved ones died of um, COVID were sort of less likely to have been able to you know, visit them at the, at the end of life or say goodbye as they would have liked um, you know, for, for, I suppose, reasons you know, like I just said, you know, with the, in the hospitals and especially on the COVID boards, you know, that it was much harder to facilitate visiting and contacts and communication. But we also found that the relatives of people who died of COVID also experienced significantly more social isolation after the death as well, which was something that initially was a bit of a surprise. But then I suppose, you know, what you also have to remember is that with the, with the COVID deaths, people who had had that contact then also had to isolate. And then there were also further restrictions placed on them. So, they were being, you know, sort of further isolated even after their family member had died if they'd had that contact. And then there probably were other sort of factors like greater anxiety around the disease. So maybe that would have made them feel more isolated as well, you know, more reluctant to go out, more reluctant to socialise if, if, from having already had that trauma. So we did find overall um, experiences were um, slightly worse when we looked at these factors for people who lost um, relatives to covid um, but I think what's really important is that actually they affected everyone as well. And everyone um, who lost loved ones at the time have, has had an awful time. You know, it's been such a difficult time to be bereaved. So although they were slightly, then they were only slightly worse for um, people whose loved ones died of COVID. But they were, um, yeah, they did come out when we did our statistical analysis. They were significantly worse for quite a number of these factors. You know, it's been a terrible time for everyone. So we wouldn't want to, <laughs> don't really want to kind of try and make out that it's been better for some groups than others than really I think the overriding messages is that it's just been such a tough time for people who have lost family members during the pandemic. And I was interested in the bereavement services as well. And I think one of the things from previous conversations that I've had around how some frontline workers who aren't necessarily NHS staff, so they've not been the clap for the carers. And so it's not to say, again, like you were saying with bereavement, it's not to say it's been easier for one group than the other, but it does feel like some uh, types of frontline workers haven't potentially received as much support. So I was wondering what your findings were around the re- you know bereavement services side. Yeah, that's something that um, we did look, we've looked at for the voluntary sector bereavement services, my, um, which was led by my colleague Lucy. Um, they've run a survey of um, third sector organisations like the bereavement charities, you know, Cruz, Mercury, and Zurida. So all, all of the voluntary sector rather than the statutory sector. Um, and I think, you know, it has found that, you know, that the services, services have been really stretched at this time. Um, you know, they've experienced funding issues as well as also challenges caused by having to move to remote working um, and yeah having to really adapt their working practices 
Um, yeah, we haven't properly analysed that with those results yet, though. So I can't. Um, sure. I think we do have some data there around, you know, impacts on the staff. But I'm not not too sure what they what they are yet. And how has the nature of your work changed over the course of the pandemic, and and where are you now? And I was wondering also how that reflects in terms of the changing times that we live in. I've not thought really thought about that before. I mean, yeah, still still working remotely has been the the main main one. You know, it's been over a year, and we're still working from home. I think we should be going starting to go back soon. I suppose, yeah, I think when we started the study, I think we thought that by now, you know, we would be properly out of it by the time we'd finished. And when we were doing our follow up survey rounds, you know, we've, we've been the survey results that we've been reporting on have been the first round survey. We've also sent surveys out at around seven months post death for participants. So we timed it to go out around seven months after their family member died. And then again at 13 months. So we're still carrying out data collection. We're still completing the project. Um, and yeah, it's it's, it's strange because you're co- having to also take into account the changing context. Um, and even in the survey response, you know, some of the people that were filling it in were filling it in, or they their loved ones had died during full lockdown. Others had experienced, you know, the death during sort of periods where we sort of opened up again. So we've also had to kind of try and take that into account when we've been looking at the results and the analysis as well, and just sort of. The fact that we're just living in this constantly changing um, situation, even things like doing presentations. You know, if we, if we do a presentation, I constantly have to like look to see, you know, we want to give some background information, you know, whether it's the death rate or it's, you know, it's normally if you present research results, you know, you can kind of leave your presentations. But we're kind of having to you have to change and update them all the time to make sure you're kind of keeping up to date with the latest developments or in your recommendations. Even sometimes we make recommendations and it's. We're in lockdown, so it's in a lockdown situation. But then sometimes you look back at them and you're like, well, that's not really so relevant now because we're kind of out of that again. But then we don't know whether we'll go back into that again. So, yeah, it's um, yeah, it's a new new experience kind of doing such live, I suppose, research. I was going to ask in terms of with the following up, I think you said it was at seven and 13 months. We have, yeah, we haven't analysed. Um, we've only just finished the seven-month survey, so that's okay. so that closed in August, and we're starting to analyse that now. So, yeah, we haven't analysed that data yet. So I can't. We, we should be getting on top of that within the next few months, and then we'll be releasing some new new results. But we're still working our way through all of the first round results. So, you know, we've had um, you know, we've had one paper um, published in Palliative Medicine now. It's about to be published, and then another one that's. Um, you know, been made available as a preprint and submit and is hopefully going to be published soon as well. But we've probably got another two or three, you know, key papers that we need to get out from this first round data. So there's so so many different aspects to look at. Um, we've got so such, you know, so rich and important data. You know, we were so lucky to get the response. We had 711 people fill the survey in, which is amazing, really. We were so grateful to everyone who took the time to fill in the survey and share their experiences with us. We're just really working to try and, you know, make the most out of that data and, you know, get really key messages out there as quickly as we can. Yeah, and I was going to ask in terms of the papers. The first paper that we published was back in June, and, um, yeah, that should be available in Palliative Medicine soon, but it's also available as a preprint on the MedArchive um, survey server um, and that one was looking at access largely at access to bereavement support following the death um, so yeah um, what types of support people have been accessing um, you know whether 
you know, what support they felt they needed. We looked at people's support needs um, and, you know, you know whether they had experienced difficulties getting the support that they needed. Um, so we were able to identify quite a few different sort of barriers for people to getting the support. You know, some were kind of more obvious ones, like just lack of availability, you know, long waiting lists. Um, but there were also issues around people not knowing how to get support, um, which links back to, you know, to the thing we, the point we discussed earlier about people not being given information about support. Um, but also, you know, people reported feeling uncomfortable asking for help, especially during a time of crisis. And, you know, that's something that people who had, you know, lost um, family members to non-COVID illnesses, they said in particular that they felt in some ways less entitled to support, which is obviously really, you know, really sad that people were feeling that way. And then also, we, you know, a lot of issues around people getting the support they needed from friends and families. So it wasn't just that people weren't getting the support that they may have wanted from services, but it was People also felt that they weren't being supported in the way that they needed from friends and family. And again, this was partly, you know, this is due to some things like just feeling uncomfortable talking about it. I think as a society, we're not that great about how we talk about, you know, death and bereavement and how we, you know, feeling open enough to be able to discuss these issues. But then there were also kind of issues to do with like, you know, lockdown and um, just the fact that people couldn't see their friends and family and weren't able to get the kind of face-to-face support and the sort of the physical comfort that they really needed during a bereavement. I think that was something that was really, really hard for people. It's just being cut off from their sort of um, sources of support at such a difficult time. In terms of other papers, what are the ones that are kind of upcoming or uh, are you planning? Yeah. Um, so uh, the, the other paper that's just been submitted and is available as a preprint um, is... Um, that one my colleague Lucy wrote, and that one's looking at experiences at the end of life. Um, and it was a, that was a quantitative paper, so it was, it was looking at the statistics. So it was some of the issues that we talked about earlier about people not feeling supported after the death or not feeling um, involved in the decisions that were made or, um, you know, problems with communication. Um, and, yeah, that paper looks at some of the differences between types of death, so, you know, COVID and non-COVID, and also... Um, where people died, the kind of impact that that has on had on people's experiences at the end of life. And there were some, you know, interesting differences there, although not necessarily unexpected. I think people whose um, family members died in hospices tended to fare a bit better in terms of their experiences of end of life care compared to hospitals. Um, and again, you know, that that's perhaps not as not all that surprising in the context of you know the huge stress that hospitals were under and. Um, you know, the fact that, you know, people providing palliative care, that's something that they, we know that they do quite well is, um, communicate with family members and provide that sort of more holistic support and approach. And then in, in terms of, uh, recommendations, I, I, I know it'll be hard from the sense of, as you said, things having changed and, and the variety, but are there any, uh, key recommendations that you found from the work that you've been doing so far? Yeah, so with the, rec- the sort of key recommendations we've identified are around, yeah, in terms of end of life stuff, um, sort of trying to find ways of improving communications with families at the end of life. So although, you know, that can be really difficult in the context of the pandemic and infection control requirements, I think it's important that um, contact is enabled with um, patients um, and family members as much as possible. You know, we can see just how important that is um, and the kind of long term effects that it has on people, you know, not not having that contact, you know, lots of, uh, lots of our participants t- talked about how they felt, you know, had this real lasting sort of guilt and trauma really relating to the fact that they hadn't been able to be there with, with them. And then sort of moving on, just making sure that 
as you know when people are bereaved that there is the support available for them if they need it i mean you know, not everybody um needs support from um services you know quite a lot of people will get the support they need from friends and family but i think what our study has shown is that that the support available for friends and family has been quite challenging because of the pandemic and that maybe there is a greater demand um, at the moment for um, additional support from services as well so it's just making sure that there's sufficient resourcing of these services because we know that they've also been really stretched and there were some messages around just making trying to make sure that the right support is available for people so we had some feedback around people again it's difficult a lot of people felt they needed face-to-face support although some people were very happy with the remote support and telephone support they got other people just felt they couldn't you know talk about these issues over the over the phone with someone they did really need face-to-face support so again you know when that becomes possible when that's a possibility, it's important that face-to-face options are available. And also people felt that, the, especially in the early days, that there needed to be more recognition of what it was to lose somebody during the pandemic. So that, you know, maybe councillors providing the support, they needed to be able to sort of recognise, you know, sort of the added sort of strains and stresses and the sort of specific nature of losing somebody to COVID or during COVID having that kind of competencies around pandemic bereavement. And then the other key message actually was, around just raising awareness of the support that is available because that's something that you know we found is that quite a lot of people just didn't know what, what support was available um, or how to get the support there just isn't enough information about out there on on how people can um, access support if they feel that they need it um, you know but I talked about the review we did at the start and how and a really important aspect of those responses was around kind of this proactive outreach approach and advertising services and I think you know you can see that this that that is something that probably would have really helped um, in this context is just there being better information on the sport that is available for people. As a bigger question, I was wondering whether you thought that we, you know, as a nation have quite dealt with the scale of loss that's been experienced. So it's interesting when you were saying there about the fact that some people haven't, that there's been kind of more of isolation, loneliness around the experience that they've had. And I wonder if you think that that ties into a wider fact that we've not maybe had a moment to reflect. Yeah, um, I think probably that it is the case that it's just been this kind of bit of a whirlwind, sort of 18 months for everybody, really. And I, I mean, particularly people who have lost family members, you know, they, and um, or experienced other kinds of trauma because of the pandemic. Um, but I think, yeah, as a society, it's been difficult to kind of stop and take stock when it's still been going on. Um, and I think, yeah, that's something that really has sort of set us apart from you know, some of the other um, mass bereavement disasters that I talked about earlier is the fact that those, they were discrete events. They happened and then the recovery phase began immediately. And you could see that, you know, the responses began immediately. The interventions were introduced. Whereas with with COVID, it's it, that's not really been possible because it's just continuing isn't it so it's actually been very difficult for everyone I think to kind of stop and start to pick up the pieces when it's something that's still going on um I think you know having that opportunity you know like back in March there was the national day of reflection um which was and I think having those opportunities are really important and I think that was an important event for people to be able to just stop and um take a minute you know even whether you've lost somebody personally or not just to think about as a, you know, as a society, you know, the, the scale of the trauma and the loss. Um, I think that's something, you know, that is important. I think that's particularly important to people who have been bereaved. That was some, that's some, in the comments that we had in our survey, that was something that came out was just feeling kind of that 
people that their deaths have been a statistic and that it had been quite dehumanising the way it had been reported in the media and all of the constant coverage of the death rates and statistics and um, but actually for the people who've experienced those loss that that actually had quite a, a significant effect on them as well and just feeling a bit forgotten about um, so yeah having those opportunities to sort of remember are, are very important I think. As a final question I was just wondering firstly what are your own uh, hopes going forward in terms of the work that you're doing? If you try to see the positives, I think one one thing that's come out of this is this greater interest really in bereavement and um, how you know how people who bereaved could be better supported, not just from services but also just you know informally through through sort of you know informal networks through friends, family, and through sort of you know community organisations, and just trying to. to generally have a better appreciation of the needs of people who are bereaved and how how that how they can be addressed so it's not just through you know i think a bit you know it's really important that people if people feel they need counseling and therapeutic support that they're able to access that but it's also having opportunities just for greater kind of um sort of social contact with other people and sort of initiatives that kind of help to address um some loneliness and social isolation um i think that's really been brought to the fore from the pandemic as well so I think just having you know greater attention on that at the moment um, is something that could hopefully improve things for the better as we start to come out of the pandemic. At the moment, I, the, um, some of the main bereavement charities have set up a commission on bereavement. I don't know if you've heard about that. It's the UK Bereavement Commission. There's a call out for evidence at the moment. So we'll be feeding in our research findings to that. Other people will be receiving research findings. But then there's also an opportunity for people and members of the public to contribute to that and answer the questions in the court of evidence as well as lots of different organisations and then the commission will be, be making reports and some recommendations and hopefully you know with the weight of the commission um, there's been a lot of engagement with um, policymakers across the UK that that you know we might start to see sort of positive changes in terms of the support that's available for brief people so yeah the more positive side is that it has brought I think something that's been not quite right for a long time and it's I think there's have been real gaps in bereavement support and the needs of bereaved people you know before the pandemic I think they became a lot worse because of the pandemic but now I think there's you know because of that there is more interest and hopefully a greater commitment to trying to make sure that the support that people need is going to be more forthcoming as we go forward. Yeah I definitely hope that's the case too Um, so thank you very much for your time. Okay thank you. Thanks so much to Emily for her time. If you haven't heard of us, COVID Aid is the UK's national charity dedicated to supporting all those significantly affected by the COVID-19 pandemic. We want to help anyone who is struggling but may not have found the correct resources or support system to help. By building an empowering and caring community, we provide a safe space where people's voices can be heard and where you can gain access to support specific to your needs. We'd love to have you as part of our community please visit covidaidcharity.org that is covidaidcharity.org and you can also find us on social media we'll be back soon with another episode and until then please take care